everyone. And welcome to 1010 Would Recommend, the podcast hosted by me, Talani. And me, Gina. We are here every week telling you about the shows to watch on Netflix and on the television sphere itself. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the documentary Nail Bomber Manhunt, which tells the story of how one man held London to ransom for 13 days in 1999. Our guests are Daniel Vernon, who is the director of the documentary, and Mike Franklin, one of the people intrinsic to the capture of David Copeland. Gina, this second season has been back for a couple of episodes now. And we haven't talked about Firefly Lane. And we both watched that at the same time and both really, really enjoyed it. And I just feel like, why have we not spoke about it? I'm a goddamn legend in the making. That's right, you are. You don't get it. You, you don't know what it's like to fail. I and mean, you succeeded at everything you tried. It's like, this is your life and I'm just along for the ride. You are so much braver than me. Your family, that is the real accomplishment. I will never have that. I was too scared to even try. They need you. And my soulmate, you bitch. <laughs> I know, this is the thing, is that during our brief hiatus, I say brief. <laughs> a long, um, <laughs> it's been a 68 long years. <laughs> there were a bunch of shows that we didn't get to recommend in that time. And one of the 100% is Firefly. That was... Oh, so 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 it is so good it's based on a friendship i guess and it goes through their different decades through their lives Mm -hmm. of these two best friends and it ends on such a cliffhanger and i haven't seen a cliffhanger like that since these It's like no one does cliffhangers anymore yeah it was you kind of get a resolution now yeah but it really ends on a massive cliffhanger and it takes you on a journey and i naturally like friendship shows anyway i also like love the trope of female friendships or any kind of friendship where one of the that they're complete opposites but somehow yes. it still works oh yes. i love that i absolutely yes. love that and there's always one that needs saving yeah and like tolly yeah. or tully was it tolly it I is think, tolly i think it's tully but it sounds tully. like tolly it does sound like tolly yeah um that confused me watching i kept looking back oh no not you baby <laughs> um, <laughs> but i really really i love that i really really love that series and it goes through what years does it go through again the Oof. 80s at some point because the fashion is yeah, so one of them is like the 80s. One of them is like the, I want to say noughties, but that might be wrong. And then I think one is the present day around yeah, the... Yeah, in the 2000s, because they, yeah. they talk about the Iraq war. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Speaking of fashion, the 80s fashion in it. Halston. That's a good one. We both just started watching that. I watched that the first good. episode and I was like, oh, I really like this. I've been an outsider my whole life. Till one day I just stopped giving a flying fuck. My wife, she thinks you're a genius. I think that's a dangerous word. I think what you call yourself a genius, you stop growing. Halston for your day. Halston for everything. It's really, really good. I was saying earlier, it gives me very much, if anybody's seen the assassination of Gianni Versace, it's just the look and feel of that show is very much similar. They're both about fashion, obviously, but just the look of it is very, it's crisp. I don't know how to explain it. It's that very... Fashion shows do that. They do that really, like the colouring is really crisp and you can, it's vibrant. 
Yeah. Like it feels like, okay, this makes sense of the world it's in. And I'm going to say her name wrong, but Lisa Minnelli, isn't it? Have I said that L- right? Liza Minnelli. Liza Minnelli. And I, that's a good point because she does a whole song. Well, her, the character that plays her does a whole song on how to pronounce her name. Yeah. And I kept rewinding it because I really enjoyed the song. <laughs> But yeah, I am saying her name wrong. Um, but it was it, it was just so good. It was such good vibes, and I feel like it's gonna get like really interesting really quickly. Yeah, the sex scene at the start. I was like, oh, that's quick. I know. I, was, I think I it was like the first ten minutes. I was like, okay. I was literally watching it at ten in the morning, and my so window was, was open in my living room. And I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> Why are sex scenes uncomfortable earlier in the day? I don't. It just. It's it feels naughty. It feels wrong. It feels really naughty. I just felt like if anybody walks past my my window. They're going to be like, why is she watching a full-on sex scene at 10 in the morning and not having a coffee like what else? why is sex scenes, um, or sex, limited to nighttime? <laughs> I think why can't because, you watch a sex scene at 10am in the morning? Because sex is like taboo, isn't it? So you have to hide it in the nighttime and ooh, meh, 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 meh. But like, you know, right? It must be that. I don't know. I feel like I'm going to do a campaign for us to watch sex scenes whenever. whenever. <laughs> I'm sure many people do. Of all the campaigns to pick in the world, that's the, that's the fight I want to fight. Definitely watch Firefly Lane. Definitely watch Halston. But let's talk a little bit, T, about, because I think this episode is going to be quite deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the top topic of the documentary that we're talking about today, and today's episode is about Nail Bomber Manhunt. Yes. It's it's deep. It is really, really deep. I cried watching it. It was just so... There's something about watching a documentary about a topic like that, but also when it's so poignant to today, that just hits you. Do you know what I mean? That's the thing, because it it happened in 1999, but everything that was being said, I was like, that could be 2021. None of these things are so far reached. It's like, oh, it happened in the olden days. So that's why. And also... I was really surprised by how I'd never heard about it. Me too. Me too. I, like 1999 is pretty recent, but I'd mm-hmm. never heard about it at all. And the fact that it was so London centric and it affected people like me, basically. Mm-hmm. But yeah, never heard a word about it ever. Totally agree. And for those of you that are confused, Nail Bomber Manhunt tells the story of how one man held London to ransom for 13 days in 1999. And essentially, it was a far right extremists that detonated these three bombs in three different areas within South London. And it talks about that story and talks to survivors and archives. This was a topic that obviously touched Talani and I a lot. So we're really excited to have this discussion. But before we do, let's have a listen to the trailer. It was a beautiful morning. Everybody was everywhere. All of a sudden, police walked over. I went, that's a bomb. Did you think of the consequences? It was my destiny. It was just complete shock and helplessness. This was like a war scene. Detectives fear the bomb could be the start of a terror campaign. I thought it was a racist threat. Was it a group of people? Was it one person? There was lots of speculation. And then... The second weekend running in the capital, ethnic communities have once again been targeted. This strikes at the heart of the Bengali community. We will defeat the people who are responsible for these bombs. So Mike and Daniel, thank you guys so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Gina and I have been anxious about this. We think it's really important to talk about this documentary. And I think the first thing we both notice is that we've never heard of it. Gina is from South London herself. 
I was born in London and it's 1999, a year where I was definitely old enough to be watching the news and being aware of what was happening. And I had never, ever heard anything about the nail bomber. I'd never heard about any of the attacks. So it was shocking to hear it for the first time in 2021. Yeah. So when I came to the story, I was really surprised, actually, that I didn't know more about this. I wasn't living in London at the time, but the news I remember was it was about the Soho bombing. And it was only fairly recently doing research into this that, of course, you know, this was a, this was an attack across London and it was attack on all sorts of communities. And so, to be honest, it was sort of the, the origins of the making of this was, was to tell a story that actually I think people have forgotten. And certainly there's a generation, a younger generation of people who've, who've never heard any of it. So yeah, it was. It came to a surprise to quite a lot of people that this even happened, even people living in London themselves. I actually wanted to pick up on that point because I think it's a really interesting, I guess, issue of how intersectional politics plays out in the way that stories are covered. Because, you know, it was fascinating to me that this had happened in three minority communities, essentially. But the one of the three got the sort of more press recognition, essentially. And that's the one that a lot more people sort of knew of. Mike, for you, as somebody who was a part of the Brixton community, which was one of the places where this bombing took place, had you noticed that sort of difference in the press covering at the time? I mean, first of all, you've got to remember the context, not just the incident, but the context of the incident. The Brixton bombing uh, happened less than two months after the publication of the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry report. So there was a lot of attention on uh, the police, the black community, uh, crime and hate crime. And the fact that when the Brixton bomb happened on that Saturday, uh, and there was a big, big uh, expectation about how the Met Police would respond to this horrendous hate crime, the first knockings of, of commentary in the media were that we have no evidence that this is a, a race hate crime, although we in the community were convinced that it was. The following week, it was Brick Lane, which was the Bangladeshi community. And while I was talking to the investigation team and the counterterrorism teams and all the people that were involved in the investigation, we were trying to think about where the bomber would strike next. And we looked at things like uh, Swiss Cottage. We looked at the area, parts of the Jewish community, the uh, community in Southall. And we were trying to trying to make sure that those communities were forewarned because we were convinced that there was a serial hater bomber uh, on the loose. So given that the context was just after the publication of the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry report, there was a degree of, of crisis of confidence. The Met Police had just been branded institutionally racist by the Stephen Lawrence uh, Inquiry report. Uh, and that's why it was so significant. And the reason we knew it was a hater was because the climate had been raised by the publication of the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry report. And we were really, really concerned that because the bomber was unsuccessful in killing anybody in Brixton, that they would come back. So a lot of our work with trying to generate public confidence in the police investigation, trying to give the police ideas about lines of inquiry, trying to get them to properly communicate with a community that had been I think really affected by the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. That was one of the one of the challenges. No, absolutely. I think sometimes even the idea of 
just calling this person a hater doesn't even feel strong enough for what they've done. I mean, the documentary goes into how like these communities, there was a mention of the BNP and instantly I was triggered. As soon as I heard it, like I felt my body like literally stiffen up because I grew up in Dagenham and there was a point where BNP like literally ruled Dagenham. And I, as a young black girl, would get leaflets through my door being like, stop the ethnic minorities or like stop them at any cause, which instantly made me realise that my body as a black body wasn't safe. And I can only imagine after going through that and as a community, being aware that you're not safe, but still coming together to be like, we have to fight this thing. And again, what made me emotional was that the lack of, I guess, support that was felt by the black community, by the police is something that still echoes today in in 2021. We can still be like, we're reporting things, we're talking about things, the things are being ignored and it still feels like a fight for the community that is not interested by the police sort of thing. And it's always interesting when crimes happen for people that are considered minorities and how it seemingly to the public and it feels like it takes longer than any other crimes to kind of sort out and deal with sort of thing. And it shouldn't, it was such a waste of lives because it shouldn't have gone past the first thing. Like nobody should have ever died by this man's hands. Again, I was talking about the context because we'd had the, uh, mm-hmm. all the publicity around the Stephen Lawrence inquiry up until the report was published in February, 1999. So, you know, there were, there were a lot of, we were very active in the community anyway. We, we, you know, it wasn't just this that brought us into this environment where we were talking to the police about solving crime in our, in our community. You know, we were still trying to stop knife crime. Two years earlier, we'd had the first ever local guns amnesty in British history in Brixton. So we knew that we could do things to keep our community safe. One of the problems with this was the, um, the, the, concern, I guess, that the police had about admitting that this was probably a, a race hate crime and the possible uh, consequences of that in terms of community confidence, given that the police had been branded institutionally racist in a public inquiry report two months earlier. So one of the things that we were trying to do was we were trying to, uh, uh, and particularly myself as the chair of the police consultative group in Lambeth at the time, I was trying to make sure that the investigation focused on not just the actual issue around the crime, but about uh, the lack of confidence that the community had in the police and it was for the police to pull their fingers out and make sure they caught this bomber. Let's talk about the footage for a moment, because there was a ton of archival footage for this documentary. And Daniel, as a documentary maker, that must have been a dream to have all of that archive stuff, all of the, the interview stuff available. How did you go about piecing together, Daniel, all of that footage and getting your interviews and, and building this so that you could do the story justice? I mean, surprisingly, there wasn't, there wasn't a huge amount of footage. I mean, these days, if an event like this happened now, you would have unlimited resource, especially people filming on their phones of the event themselves. This was kind of just precursor to 24-hour rolling news. So it was also the time where you had Sky News, you know, suddenly came out of nowhere, and they came down with cameras and filmed the aftermath of Brixton, where remarkably they happened to... And we only found this a few weeks before the end of the edit. We, we managed to find, you know, the two Barrow boys at the beginning with, you know, the ripped up jeans. There they were suddenly walking towards the camera, which was quite remarkable. And so you've got a sense of how, it, you know, you never get a sense of how it really was at, at the time. But you were able to see the carnage, some of the carnage that was, 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 was left over there. And the same with the Soho bombing, actually. It happened to be a guy who was photographing in Berwick Street Market some asparagus. So at the beginning of his role of film, there's pictures of close-ups of asparagus 
and oranges. And then he heard the explosion. He ran down there, and the rest of the photos are of you know absolute horror. So yeah, in terms of the archive, it was it was it was trying to piece together from lots of different sources how to try and build the story together. Now the one piece of archive which acted as a bit of a thread through it was the BMP footage. And I was really surprised at how much these guys pushed themselves forwards and, in, 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 you know, in the sort of, with respectable suits in front of the Houses of Parliament, and yet there was hate speech. And that was really shocking to see how far that was being allowed to even be broadcast at the time. And I think going back to what you said at the beginning of this is, why don't we remember this? I think part of the reason is because when this story came out, eventually, after people like Mike banged on the door and said, this is a racist attack, eventually the Met had to say, yeah, yeah, it's kind of racist. But what they did do was say that this was an act of a loner, a one-off, probably won't happen again. What they failed to do is to understand that this was the result of a much bigger organisation that has just kept on growing and morphed in much more secretive ways. They don't stand in front of the House of Parliament now you know, they're not like John Tyndall. They, <clears throat> they're actually finding much more sophisticated ways of tapping into young minds, and the situation is very different now. So I think that's one of the reasons it's one of these stories that's slightly covered up, because actually the conclusion was it's the act of a madman, act of a loner. Yes, he was racist, but he was doing it on his own. He wasn't. He was supported. There's a whole architecture... You know, there's a whole system around him that needs further investigation. Yeah, because it's such a complex, it's such a complex and padded story. And yes, it is this one sole person. But like you said, he's backed by so many ideologies as well. So how, was there any desire to talk to him? I mean, I know we get a lot of that in recent interv- in documentaries where people want to talk to the actual person that does it. Was there ever a desire to do that at all? Or did you just not want him in it at all? We made a very conscious decision about this from the beginning, that actually here was somebody who wanted to be famous. Here was somebody who, who wanted to be heard, and the way he did that was to commit these atrocities. So we wanted to make sure that we never stepped over the line and gave him that kind of soapbox and to give an interview, because really what would he tell us? He doesn't sound redemptive from what I've heard, so it would just give him a further platform. So. We, never, we, we, ne- we contacted the family just to let them know what we were doing out of respect, but we didn't, you know, we didn't want to speak to him. No, even if we could, we wouldn't have done. I wanted to pick up on your point, actually, about that wider architecture at play that allows for these sort of views by the person who did it, but the wider group of the BNP and that sort of hate speech to be propelled. Because for me, I, I could not get over the person who was undercover in the group and the question being asked like did you ever start to believe what was being told to you and him sort of honestly answered and I I honestly you know I'm glad that he was honest it was scary but he was honestly like yeah after a while I did feel as if yeah maybe this is true maybe I'm believing all the, all the things that I believe are wrong and actually this is the truth about that I just I don't know I really wanted to sort of ask you about your thoughts about sort of his his part in the documentary and and what it was like speaking to him and his and, and what is a really unique I guess part in in this whole story? Yeah, I mean Arthur is and he's he's his unique period because he literally walked off the street and the, well the BNP had been campaigning in an area he lived in and he wanted to do something about it and what what was of so many fascinating things about him but. Essentially, you've got two men about the same age 
one of them decides that he wants to plant bombs and kill people, and another person decides that he wants to stop people. Like you know, he wants to he wants to be on the, <laughs> the completely opposing side to that, and they cross they cross lines. They both walk into the so Arthur joined the BNP before Copeland did, but they happened to cross over each other, and they were both there for completely different purposes. Um, Arthur had. You know, he'd never done anything like that before. And when he entered Searchlight, it wasn't like they could give him loads of training. He was, he was on the ground trying to work out how to become a spy, not be caught. And it still blows my mind a bit because he never took any money for it. He didn't write a book about it. You know, there's none of this sort of usual cashing in. It was a purely selfless act that was just really unusual and rare. But yeah, he, I mean, he was an integral part of the story, without a doubt. Yeah, I thought he was really interesting because there was a part when they mentioned that even his family didn't know what he was doing until like the 20th anniversary of the bombing and just how, yeah, I think the, the role he played was very interesting just to see, again, the contrasting parts of two people who both joined this party, I guess, because he went in there completely opposed to it. And then he was like, at, there was a point when he thought, actually, are they are these people making a point which is actually quite interesting and scary i suppose day, yeah day after day after today I mean, it's sort of pre-internet in the way we know it now but day after day he's hanging around with these people for 10 years you know he's being slapped and some of them became his friends there's no other way of doing this spy thing properly i guess so day after day you're being told by people that you, you know you can see good sides to and they're telling you this crap as well and then eventually I, you know, it's hard to see, but I, it did. It did obviously get. It went that far with him. But in a way, Arthur represents. I mean, what I think is most interesting about this story, in some ways, is it's Arthur is a bit. He, you know, there's there's so many ordinary people in this story. Mike, Mike's one of them. I don't mean to call you ordinary, Mike, but you were just you're, you're a normal guy who man who just decided to do something very brave and stand up against a lot of opposition, and I think that's what's quite incredible, because the police, you know, they didn't really have a clue, did they? And they were, I think they were trying to do what they could, but it was actually the people that caught the bomber essentially weren't the police. Physically, the police grabbed him, yes, but it was the likes of Arthur, the likes of Mike, the likes of number of other people involved in this story who brought him to justice and i think that's what gives you that it does give you a sense of hope that um these things can be done but also a sense it's quite scary because how often do people really stand up against this i i i, I don't know it also gives you a sense of the failure of of copeland because the narrative that we we adopted after the investigation when he was finally arrested and and, and convicted was that this was a person who was a, a hater and he attempted to kill and maim people, black people in Brixton, Asian Bangladeshi people in Brick Lane and the gay people in, in Soho. This was a, a complete and utter failure. And, and I, I guess one of the strong points about the documentary is the transcripts from his interviews where he's actually asked about his motivation, about his intention. And we knew when, when Copeland was captured 
that he would have carried on bombing until he was called. And we knew we we also knew that ultimately one of his targets was the Notting Hill Carnival. You can imagine a bomb packed with nails going off in the middle of a crowd at Notting Hill Carnival. So we weren't we, we didn't underest, underestimate how serious uh, this was. And I guess one of the concerns that the police had was the community reaction, because as I say again two months after the publication of the Stephen Lawrence report. That was one of the things that that drove a lot of us to try and hold up a mirror to some of those failures of of the past. This was a a serious one. They really, really had to get on top of this. And I think on the way, um, we had to uh, make sure we told people what it felt like to be in a community that where you were thinking, if I go shopping in Brixton Market this Saturday, am I going to get bombed? That was that was what a lot of people were saying on the on the, on the streets. We people were really really concerned, and then you start looking at people, wondering who the bomber might be, who might be involved, uh, and and so on. But I, I was saying before Gina about the importance of the CCTV, and the fact that um, the cameras were uh, elevated cameras looking downwards, so you didn't have you know the full body pictures of, of people. You had the heads and and shoulders in a big milling crowd. So the fir- firstly, I paid tribute to the police for uh, rapidly scrutinising that CTV- CCTV and coming up with a potential suspect. The issue that was then, how quickly do they re- were they going to release a picture of Copeland so that um, anybody who might know him or might have known him would be able to come forward? And I felt that, that there was some prevarication over releasing that picture quickly. And their, their reason was that if we release this, it's a blurry picture, we're going to get inundated with tens of thousands of calls and it will cripple the helpline and, and so on and so forth. But my, my response to that every time was while you're prevaricating over this grainy picture, the bomber is preparing the next bomb. And that, was, and that was the issue. What are you going to say to us if you're here having this discussion about the picture and another bomb goes off? Uh, and, you know, sometimes it's, that, it's about that reality check. You've got to be able to put that reality in front of them um, and, and make them see the urgency. Uh, and you'd had people saying, you know, we want, we want to catch him as much as you do, Mike. I said, no, you don't. You don't live in Brixton. Yeah, definitely. That was mentioned in the um, documentary, actually, where someone's um, community was talking about the aggravation with some of the replies they got from the police. And Mike, you made a good point about the recordings and getting your hands on the interview. Daniel, how did you manage that? Is it like public domain? Can anybody get it? How did you get the recording of him kind of saying his motives? Oh, that's a, it's a very exhaustive process. I mean, the thing is about, about him, and he really should have been advised to do it by a lawyer, is you no know, comment, and most people these days, no comment. This guy just talked and talked and talked for days and days and days. And he did, he did believe that he was being, that he was politically motivated. But what's interesting in the interviews is the further you go down into it, you start unpeeling a very vulnerable character who was unsure about a lot of things. And obviously somebody who, you know, when he was in the clutches of the BNP, just poured all of the angst and hatred he has as a young man into these ridiculous ideas that have been touted by Tyndall and the likes. So he was just, he was sort of an empty vessel, just a, a nobody who, you know, you join these, you join these organisations and they, they just fill that vessel with reasons why you should hate more. Um, you're one of us. They are essentially a family that he you know, was looking for. And, uh, you know, we go back to Arthur, and Arthur 
obviously had a family and had friends before he declared himself a Nazi to everyone and everyone probably gave him a white birth. But he too, he shows the power of that kind of uh, psychological um, brainwashing, really, that someone like Arthur, who was there strictly to do something good, he was going there to oppose them, but even he felt changed by it day after day after day after day after day, drinking with these people, sharing time with these people, getting to know, you know, their family, their friends, their kids. And you start seeing a different reality. And that's, I think that's really frightening. And, and at no stage, really, in those interviews, I didn't think, uh, where, was he being questioned enough about these organisations and what he was in? Because really, you would expect after an event like that to, you know, to, to go after others. And I, I'm not quite sure they did. Because there's more people culpable, definitely. I'm curious, Daniel, having made the doc and been the director, and Mike, having seen the doc and also been a part of it, for for both of you, um, and Daniel, I'll take your answer first, what is, uh, for you, the most crucial scene in the documentary? There are a few that every time I hear them, they, they still, yeah, stay with me. One of them is actually the ending. It's actually Mike. Which, to be honest, if it was anyone else but Mike and what he's been through, saying there's more good than bad, it would sound like a cliche. But after that story and it being Mike involved in it, he just he owns those words and they mean it. That actually, that's the that's the ray of hope that you take away. That remember that the film is actually about the people that stopped this 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 bomber uh, who ultimately failed, and 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 humanity won over. Uh, courage, bravery, one over, and I feel that is the biggest, strongest message I can I take from it. But well, I guess also I always think about Gary, who, who lost his le- leg. I think it's his his sort of philosophy about it all at the end, and how it, he reminds us that this is something where the ripples go so much further. I think it's, it's his dignity is what it is to recognise that he hasn't just taken away something from, from himself, from Gary. He's taken something away from um, hundreds of other people connected. It's like the ripple effect of all these people who are, if they're not physically damaged, they're, they're, they're psychologically damaged. It's, it's, and then he goes back to Copeland himself saying his life, what a waste of a life, what an absolute waste after his parents and everything. And I think just being able to have that overview and, and have that insight from someone who lived through it is, again, quite, I found it quite um, important. That was the same thing for me as well. I wrote it down and he was like, what a waste of lives. Like, what was the point of this? So many people's lives have been affected, included his own. And that bit really touched me as well at the end of the documentary, definitely. Well, Daniel, Daniel I remember when we were doing, doing the uh, filming, one of the things that I remember saying was that I, I was left with the same feeling about waste, about missed opportunity. Mm-hmm about the impact of evil, you know, how, how wickedness can ruin people's lives. I watched the, the, the documentary with my grandson. That, that's a bit at the end. We're talking about, you know, more, more good people than bad uh, was the thing that, that resonated with him, uh, him most. But I remember when we were filming, saying, well, look, you know, Copeland is doing six life sentences in prison. I'm going home. It's Friday evening and enjoy, enjoy myself. And it's that feeling of, in, in spite of the unspeakable evil, you know, uh, good people prevailed. Uh, the rule of law 
prevailed and we learned something. We learned something about ourselves, about our community's strengths and re resilience. Uh, we learned something about the um, uh, about how people fight back against against wickedness, and we learned something about ha how important it is to challenge and defeat racism in in all, all its forms. Because because what, what Copeland Copeland was was the sharp end of hate, the harsh sharp end of discrimination, hate, and 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 dis, you know racism. And yet he failed for all that he failed. Okay, it injured many people, maimed people, killed people. But the 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 intention of creating a race war didn't didn't work. There were black people and white people and Asian people and straight people and gay and lesbian people, all after catching this 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 man, and we we succeeded. And the the hope that I'm left with is that that um, like our, our two friends here today who said they weren't aware of it, but having heard about it, that you take that, you know, take that with you for your future. The fact is, we don't have to live in, in that type of cesspit of hatred. And the damage that it does for, for people, it's, it's really, really worth rolling up your sleeves and fighting against it. And, I, you know, I, I'm quite proud of the role that I played in, in, in catching this man. And I'm quite proud of the, the role that the community of Brixton played. Well, we are very proud of you, Mike, and everything that you did, you've done and are doing. And I think that literally your last speech actually filled a power in me to be like, because sometimes it does get down and dear you. It does feel like we're still having these same conversations. There's still homophobia. There's still racism. There's still all these things. But then I think in a world where there is very good now, there's also very bad. I'm also I'm very happy that many a times the very good like wins. And it's really, really nice to see that. And Daniel, thank you for making this documentary, not only to educate everybody else, but also myself who didn't have a clue about this and, was, was, I'm going to shout about it. Like everybody needs to watch it and just be informed about it for sure. I spent 10 years undercover in the far right. I've got a different perspective. There was talk about starting a race war. All someone had to do was light a match. Whilst the politicians and the police were dithering, the bomber is preparing the next bomb. It brought the pressure to a different level. Nobody was thinking about the fact that this could go wider to the gay community. I was passing by and then... I feel like weirdly empowered by that. I guess not weirdly, but I feel massively empowered by that. And honestly, guys, please watch the Nail Bomber Manhunt. It's very interesting. And yeah, I think it's really insightful. The whole, the way documentary has been done, the interviews, just talking to the ordinary people that play such a big part in this massive manhunt. Is, it's it's amazing. Definitely watch it. Definitely worth watching, I'd say. 1010 would recommend. 1010 would recommend. And, you know, I really feel like, you know, that that bit about good prevailing over evil was so poignant to me because what you were saying about it feeling really dreary is so true. Like I, it, it made me think, where, why, where do I get the nerve to be so pessimistic constantly? Like I, I need to, for the good of everyone, like everyone needs to, for the good of the world, be like optimistic. You know, it is, it's because so often you don't see good winning. It feels like good is not winning, even though it does. It does feel like good is not winning. It so often feels like the news is always bad. So it's just like, when does good win sort of thing? So it's actually good to hear a story where it does win. And it's like, yeah, it's like history teaching us lessons and history telling us that as a community, we can really shake up the world, which is great to know. 
Absolutely, we can. Definitely. So, yes, as T says, we both, 10 out of 10, would recommend that documentary. But if you want to watch something a little more lighthearted, we do have some other recommendations. We already mentioned Holston. That is really, really great. We'll give, The bare premise of this is that it's about a fashion designer who starts, I think, by making hats for his mum. Yeah, he starts by making hats and then everybody stops wearing hats. Yeah. Although I do love a hat. Do you know, you have never seen you in a hat. That's because I have a huge head. I'm sorry, hats look great on me. Um, <laughs> but he's like, they do. I, I really, I've got a good head for hats. But he is like a massive New York legend. He's like mates of Andy Warhol. Like he's, he's a big time man in the fashion world. So it's really interesting to see this story and see how it plays out. Yeah. And just, I guess, I feel like I'm learning about new people all the time. Me again, too. I don't think I'd ever heard of him before this. What else would you recommend watching? Anything else as a 1010 this week? Hmm. Well, I would say if you're looking for a thriller, I know, I mean, look, we all know now that I'm a scaredy, scaredy pants. But if you like thrillers, then you should definitely watch Woman in the Window. It stars Amy Adams and Gary Oldman, premise of which is a woman who, from her window, sees a murder. 911. My neighbor Jane, she's been stabbed. NYPD. Why is he here? Mr. Russell believes that you made a mistake. You have never met my wife. We spent the evening together. I'm Jane Russell. She's not Jane. I know what I saw. Your doctor said that your meds can cause hallucinations. Why are you protecting them? Oh, no. Did you spoil anything there? I don't think I did. Someone gets stabbed. (laughs) You just keep revealing more (laughs) when you don't need to. (laughs) You could have just been like, she sees a bad thing happen. She sees a spooky thing happen. Yes. And then that's the story follows on from there. Um, I haven't started watching it yet, but I've heard amazing things about Startup. Mm, yeah, it got so, recommended to me the other day. Yeah, I, it's not a recommendation for me. So if you don't like it, don't at me. Um, <laughs> but I'll watch it and I'll let you know more next week. And speaking of adding, please do at us in your recommendations using the hashtag 1010WouldRecommend, as always. And T, if they want to just talk to you, say lovely things, where can they find you on socials? You can only send me lovely things at totally underscore T on Instagram and totally underscore T on Twitter. And you can send me equally as lovely things at SmileGina, that's G-E-N-A, on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok. And if you want to look for Netflix UK elsewhere, it's Netflix UK on all platforms, including YouTube. That is it for this week's 1010 with Becca Men. Thank you guys so much for listening. Like Gina said, please be sure to use the hashtag 1010 with Becca Men and chat to you guys next week. Bye from me. Bye. Bye.